Hello again, everybody. My name is Sheila Ramdrick, and I'm part of the ERS Monograph Editorial Board as their Early Career Member Representative. I'm currently a consultant pulmonologist working in the Manchester region of the UK. Now, following the successes of previous Monograph podcasts, we are now recording our sixth, relating to the recently available ERS Monograph entitled Lung Stem Cells and Development, Health and Disease. We are incredibly privileged this evening to be joined by the guest editors, Marco Nikolic and Bridget Hogan. Marco is a UK Research and Innovation Fellow at the University College of London, where he set up his own independent research group after completing a welcome fellowship. He also continues his clinical commitments at Royal Papworth Hospitals and the University College London Hospitals. Bridget Hogan is a development biologist noted for her contributions to mammalian development, stem cell research, and transgenic technology and techniques. And even though she is recently retired, she still is a professor in the Department of Cell Biology, previously at Duke University. So welcome to you both. Now, I was just wondering a little bit about your career paths and why the particular interest in this area. And also, I was curious to know if there was a particular mentor or or key moment that led you to this interest or developed your interest in this field. As Sheila said, I began my career as a developmental biologist working in London from 1974 to 1988. It was a really exciting time back then because my lab and others were isolating the first cDNAs from mouse embryos related to genes controlling embryonic development in flies. Genes encoding factors like homeobox proteins, decapentaplegic, which is related to BMP4, and sonic hedgehog. Also, we worked out the first methods for in situ hybridization, which allowed us to see when and where these genes are being expressed in tissues like the uh, developing mouse brain and limbs and, of course, the lung. From this, we came to the quite unexpected realization that these conserved genes were likely regulating development in mammalian embryos as well as flies. And then mouse transgenic technology became available to test these ideas genetically. I was always fascinated by the lung because it develops by the process of branching morphogenesis, which is a conserved mechanism used by many other organ systems. And it was really so exciting to see genes like BMP4 and Sonic Hedgehog being expressed in the tips of the growing branches. I remember this particularly. It was just really exciting to to see it with one's own eyes. So in 1988, I moved to Vanderbilt University in the USA and became more interested in the lung because Mildred Stallman was working there. As a neonatologist, she had pioneered the care of premature babies and was a great expert on the anatomy and physiology of the early lung. I learned a huge amount from her looking down an electron microscope. Again, for me, seeing something, it was really stimulating to having ideas. So then in 2002, I moved to Duke Medical School to become chair of the Department of Cell Biology. Around this time, I went to a scientific meeting where, in just a a casual conversation over coffee, Doug Melton, a famous developmental biologist working on the pancreas, asked me if there are stem cells in the lung. I was shocked to realize that I didn't know. And I went back to the lab and started looking into the question uh, with my great team of postdocs. 
So Jason Rock, who's now at Genentech, and Emma Rawlings, now at the Gurdon Institute in Cambridge, did some of the first lineage tracing experiments to show how basal cells in the mouse upper airways function as stem cells. And Jason, in fact, developed the first lung organoids by growing single basal cells in 3D culture, where they give rise to spheres containing ciliated and secretory cells. Uh, and then later, a pulmonologist, Christina Barkalkus, working in the lab, showed that alveolar type 2 cells can function as stem cells and give rise to alveolar spheres in 3D culture. She also spearheaded our foray into uh, human lung stem cells. Well, sadly, as uh, Sheila said, I've now closed my lab at Duke, although I am still a professor in cell biology. And I'm very fortunate to have Purushothama Rao Tata, uh, known to everybody as Tata, and uh, Alex Tata as colleagues. So I still remain closely involved in lung stem cell research and all the exciting discoveries that are being made in the field. Thank you so much for sharing your career path there. I, I can almost visualise with the words you've used what you were seeing. It was fantastic and such a simple question that prompted this research and, and helped um, with the monograph as well, obviously. Marco, did you have a similar type of experience? What prompted your interest in the area? Basically, after completing school in Germany, I went on to study medicine at Cambridge, which consisted of doing three years of basic science, followed by another just over two years of clinical school. I then went on to do two years of foundation training as a qualified doctor, going through all the different medical and surgical specialties. And before continuing my clinical training, I then decided to spend several months in a basic science laboratory doing molecular and cell biology. And that is really when I knew that I wanted to do this throughout my career, so combining both being a doctor and basic science. So being able to create an advanced knowledge, but equally uh, use that new knowledge to help patients in a clinical setting. And I thought that was just the perfect job anybody could have. So with this in mind, I went on to do two more years of core medical training as a doctor, I decided to specialize in respiratory medicine. And straight after becoming a registrar, I applied and got a place on the Welcome PhD program for clinicians at Cambridge, where I did my PhD with Emma Rawlins at the Gurdon Institute, who used to be a postdoc in Bridget's lab. And this was a very basic science environment, and we were working on both on mouse and human lung development. And I found it absolutely amazing to watch the lung develop and was and still am very intrigued how this happens at a molecular and cellular level. After four years of doing that, I went back to full-time clinical medicine for a bit until I was awarded a clinical lectureship, which allowed me to spend half of my time on science. I then, as you mentioned, Sheila, got an independent position as a UKRI Innovation Fellow when I moved away from Cambridge to UCL, to University College London, uh, for the past three years, during which time I've continued my work on uh, lung development, but also contributed to the effort of understanding COVID-19 pathogenesis in the lung. And alongside my scientific work, I'm also an honorary consultant in respiratory with a special focus on lung transplantation. 
Sheila, I think you you asked about a particular mentor or moment. Well, with regards to mentors, this has always been hugely important, most notably at the beginning of my career. Clinician scientists such as David Lomas, Stefan Machinyak, Nick Morell and Edwin Chilvers. And I was always surprised that they believed in me without being sure myself at all. But I just thought, uh, well, why don't I just go with the flow um, and trust them a little bit and see what happens? Of course, there was also my outstanding PhD in postdoctoral supervisor Emma Rawlins. But by far, the most fascinating and motivating mentor was Bridget Hogan, my fellow co-editor of this ERS monograph. So basically, Bridget spent six months of her sabbatical in Cambridge. And at the time, we were working together on various projects. And I remember a particular moment when we managed to successfully grow our first branched organoid from embryonic lung stem cells. So I got a massive well done, a smile and even a hug. And that was certainly a very memorable moment, which kept my interest going for uh, for many years after that. And I just want to finish by saying that mentorship uh, has absolutely been essential to me. And it is actually not only restricted during dedicated meetings between mentor and mentee, but occurs over a long period of time and also extends to times when mentors are just being observed when they are not aware that anyone is looking, how they deal with failure, success, and most importantly, their positive attitude to problem solving. That must have been such a phenomenal moment. And the one thing I suppose I've always wondered is how have you managed to balance so well being a clinician and a scientist? Because many people struggle with this. Would you put this down to the mentorship that you obviously have so well received? How can people succeed with these skill sets and if they want to pursue such a career as yours? That's a very good question. I think you're right that, you know, uh, if you see mentors, you know, having gone through the process already, it kind of uh, gives you the strength to keep going. But uh, it, it is tough, especially at the beginning, because, I mean, I wanted to go into a very basic science uh, environment. But you, you start in this basic science environment after just having gone through house officer and SHO uh, registrar years, and you start just right at the beginning. How did you manage that? You've done your foundation year, you're then going through as a CMT, and then all of a sudden you're thrown into a totally different environment, no patients, having to speak a language that was taught to you for three years, uh, a long time ago now. How did you manage? Well, to be fair, I need to also mention that, you know, the Cambridge medical course was very kind of basic science. So your brain has already started thinking that way. And then I, you know, after my foundation training, I did four months doing basic science in a lab. So you start thinking that way. But going into an entirely basic science you know, environment with no clinician scientists, just basic scientists mm. who, who don't understand your language, don't understand why don't you get certain things, you know, uh, was a bit tough at the beginning. But one thing I would just say is keep going. If they learned it, you can learn it as well. And I'm very glad I, I kept going because now I can speak both of these languages and uh, can contribute to both clinical medicine and basic science and obviously the translation which is required. Bridget, if you have someone like Marco, well, that's not a bad thing in your lab. How how do you support them? What are are there specific techniques? Um, Do you support them slightly differently 
Well, I've been very fortunate. I mentioned uh, Christina Barkalkas, who was extremely hardworking. She had a very heavy clinical load, which is unlike many physicians, scientists who go into a lab, they get uh, relieved of their clinical work. She had a big clinical load, uh, but she still worked in the lab with, actually, in the end, three young children. Um, so I had enormous admiration for her. And I think the point was that we, we were very enriched by her knowledge of uh, the clinical problems. Uh, she had a slightly different perspective. She kept on saying things like, well, why is this important? What's the relevance of this? And that often in, in lab meetings uh, made us think afresh uh, and think about how things could be adapted and perhaps uh, exploited in the clinic. So I think as long as one, um, there's mutual respect, that's what it has to be. And we have to admire what um, the clinicians are doing and understand why they're motivated to come back, uh, as Marco said, into this a situation where they're thrown in with a lot of uh, uh, young people who kind of uh, haven't seen um, what's the importance of uh, respiratory disease in the clinic, people dying, people gasping for breath, uh, people relying on you to do the right uh, procedure. So mutual respect is the answer, I think. Just wanted to mention one more thing with the clinician and scientist. You've got lots of people who are, lots of clinicians who are scientifically trained, but they do it a little bit and then they go back to full-time clinical medicine. And that's a huge benefit to science. But what I thought or noticed that those people who, you know, make it into senior fellowship level and kind of do it long-term, so do 90% of science and 10% of clinical medicine, they spend most of their time doing science. Because if you want to be at the top of your game, you know, you need to be able to spend at least 90 percent, 85 percent of your of your time doing science. Otherwise, my feeling is it's going to end at some point. And that's what I'm trying to kind of replicate sometimes at the cost of losing some of my clinical skills. But I think it is worth it. I think I'd like to um, echo that as well. I think that um, really, really top level basic research is enormously requires enormous concentration and effort and focus uh, to keep up. Uh, also, at the level of uh, writing papers, publication, going to meetings, being seen, attracting good postdocs and things like that. It's, uh, as Marco said, 80 or 90 percent effort is really needed in, in the end. And it is really important for, I think, full-time clinicians to be also aware of that and to support people trying to combine both science and uh, clinical time, which I have received tremendously. And I'm, I've been very blessed in, in Cambridge because I always felt, and at, uh, at UCL, because I've always felt very supported in people enabling me to do both science and clinical medicine. And I suppose from that, I am a full-time clinician. I have never done any basic science research myself. And being very frank, very honest, I was a little nervous about reading the chapters, thinking, will I understand anything? And actually, something I've realised through my career, those who know the most are able to explain things in the most beautiful ways that anyone can understand. So thank you, first of all. And on that, why is this edition of the monograph so important? Why should a clinician read this and a scientist as well whose interest is in uh, the respiratory system? 
Well, I believe that this edition is hugely important for both clinicians and scientists. And I would even say for lay people and patients who might be misinformed uh, by any dubious therapeutic options involving stem cells out there. So everyone has heard of stem cells, and this book essentially covers everything there is to know about stem cells found in the lung during development during health, so in homeostasis and maintenance, but also in disease. And it contains um, many examples about how recent technical and conceptual breakthroughs have advanced our understanding of uh, lung stem cells. And this book is really unique, I would say, because both Bridget and I have taken utmost care to involve the biggest trustworthy names and diverse experts in the fields across the globe to summarize the latest advances and future challenges in a digestible format. So people don't have to be scared that they will not understand the language, but which is still applicable to both scientists and clinicians, and particularly something which is very important to both of us for those who are still in training. So if we take clinicians, they'll be especially interested how these latest advances I've just mentioned uh, relate to their patients, uh, what the potential is for the future, and most relevant to those who suffer from end-stage lung disease or infection, which, as an example, can lead to the destruction of the epithelial layer in airways, as it can happen with viral infections, uh, prompting um, basal cells, uh, which Bridget touched upon, which are the main stem cells of the airway epithelium, to replenish the more differentiated daughter cells. We've also designed a specific section on lung stem cells and disease with dedicated chapters on the role of stem cells on diseases such as fibrosis, CF, COPD, lung cancer and ARDS. This section is hence particularly important for any clinicians. On the other hand, scientists might be more interested in subsections covering lung development, adult airway and alveolar stem cells with a focus on mechanisms that regulate their behavior and how stem cell function can be modeled with the latest model systems and cutting edge molecular and cellular analysis. Clearly, the, the whole book is relevant and important for both scientists and clinicians. And this is because we believe that only through very close collaboration and, and and also awareness of each other's strengths, transformational discoveries can be made. And finally, I'd just like to particularly draw your attention to Bridget's and my introduction chapter, which gives the reader a very nice overview of the field, especially to those who are new to it. And most importantly, the last chapter, which summarizes the very exciting next 10 years in lung stem cell research. To me, without hesitation, one of the most exciting areas in respiratory medicine. And we do make the point that there are many challenges remaining, but that there is a clear path to use use scientific knowledge about stem cells to harness them for therapeutic purposes, specifically to prevent and treat debilitating lung disease for the many affected by it globally. I would absolutely echo for the reader to, to read a, a very eloquent piece that has been written by you both in the introduction. In terms of this is always, I think, the hardest question because you don't want to upset your co-authors, but if you could only read one or two chapters... <laughs> Which would they be and why? Well, you're quite right. There are so many um, great chapters that it's uh, hard to choose just one. 
However, I think the chapter by Tushar Desai and his colleagues at Stanford University is entitled Lung Stem Cells and Therapy for Cystic Fibrosis. It covers a lot of ground, uh, much of it quite new, and therefore will be of sort of broader uh, interest. Uh, For example, it gives uh, up-to-date information on uh, a genetic lung disease and uh, gene editing in stem cells, both in pluripotent stem cells and in endogenous basal cells that can be uh, grown outside the lung in in the lab in a dish, and so therefore can be more easily manipulated for genetic editing. And then the big question about uh, lung cell transplantation, how you get these cells back into the lung where they'll be therapeutic. So, I mean, as you know, cystic fibrosis is caused by mutations in the gene encoding the chloride channel protein known as CFTR. And over the past few years, there have been tremendous advances in the development of drugs uh, that allow the abnormal mutant CFTR to fold up correctly and so be delivered to the cell surface where it can function normally. However, you know, there are still many mutations that can't be corrected in this way. And so one solution to this problem and also to a sort of a long term lifetime therapy for all people with CF is to correct the DNA using gene editing in the lab and to replace stem cells in the lung with the corrected one. And it's thought that only about uh, 10 to 20 percent of the cells would need to be corrected to give relief from uh, the major symptoms. So this kind of uh, strategy of gene editing and cell therapy is now becoming more possible because we can isolate cells from individual patients, from any tissue, but, you know, say the skin or the blood, and reprogram them to be pluripotent uh, stem cells. And then to take these cells growing in the dish and to correct the mutation using CRISPR-Cas9. And in fact, almost every day there are new technologies being developed, like something called prime editing, which are even more efficient and precise than the CRISPR-Cas9. So this is really exciting. And then you can take the pluripotential stem cells and differentiate them into basal stem cells. And because they have come from the patient's um, own tissue, they wouldn't uh, be rejected after transplantation. And there are chapters on deriving these pluripotential stem cells and uh, differentiating them into lung stem cells. However, there's great hurdle to be overcome is how to efficiently transplant these cells into the airways. And ideally, this could be done in very young children so that the the cystic fibrosis could be prevented from uh, developing and the secondary complications uh, such as infections before they've set in, uh, one could correct the um, mutation. And so, you know, this challenge of cell transplantation is a a more general one facing all clinicians who want to use stem cells for therapy. And this is sort of nicely discussed by uh, Tushar and his colleagues in the chapter. So I think this one, as I said, covers a lot of ground and will be of general interest. Was there another chapter? So um, I guess I'm a bit biased here, but I think the chapter that I wrote with my ex-postdoc, Hiro Katsura, on organoids, lung organoids, is really quite important because I think organoids are becoming more and more powerful as tools for studying how genes regulate stem cell growth and differentiation. And we describe quite simple ones in which just the lung epithelium forms these uh, spheres, but now people are combining uh, 
these uh, epithelium with uh, mesenchyme and then in the future with blood vessels, immune cells and uh, different kinds of fibroblasts and, and uh, even lymphatics so that one can look at cell-cell interactions and how the stem cell niche is organized and the way that cell stem cells and the niche cells talk to each other. And then, of course, you can genetically manipulate the stem cells and see how uh, they affect the behavior of the organoids and how they uh, develop. And Marco, was there a particular chapter that stands out for you? Yes, I'll be biased as well a little bit. So naturally, I would choose the lung development chapter I worked on with two of my students. And if you're interested in adult lung stem cells, then surely it is important to find out where they come from and how the lung is actually made. And I would really urge everybody to read it and see that we have made significant progress in the last few years in both mouse and human lung development. Uh, But you might wonder what is actually the relevance to disease? Well, in the chapter, we illustrate why studying the development of the lung is critical to discovering new therapies for premature neonates, but also those affected by end-stage respiratory failure. So for instance, premature babies get a lot of problems, and it is actually their immature lung which has a direct adverse effect on mortality and morbidity. Antenatal steroids, you might be aware, can and are routinely given to mothers at risk of premature delivery in order to accelerate alveolar maturity duration which does increase the chances of survival in the short term. However, they do not overcome the long-term effects of prematurity on lung function, displaying COPD-like features in early adulthood. Hence, a greater understanding of the molecular events driving lung development and maturation may provide us with alternative therapeutic uh, approaches. And my final point is that if you want to either engineer replacement lungs for patients with end-stage lung disease from whatever cause, or manipulate adult lungs for therapeutic purposes, or merely just understand lung regeneration and repair and when these processes fail uh, and lead to disease, one really needs to understand how these stem cells are laid down during development in the first place. So please do have a look at the chapter. In terms of disease models that are used, can we talk a little bit about ferrets? Uh, yes, well, I confess I've never really seen a ferret in, in a lab. Instinctively, I feel that um, I might be a bit frightened of them, but I'm told that they're very gentle and easy to handle. For decades, you know, the, the mouse has been the mainstay of basic research into lung biology and lung stem cells, uh, mainly because it can be genetically manipulated using uh, different transgenic and gene editing techniques. And this makes it very easy to test uh, gene function. However, you know, the mouse is uh, really very small and it's becoming clear that there are significant differences in the anatomy of uh, mouse and human lungs. One example is that there are very big differences in the number and distribution of submucosal glands. And these uh, glands are an important source of mucins and antibacterial and anti-inflammatory proteins. However, you know, not much is known about the mechanisms controlling submucosal gland growth and differentiation and their contribution to conditions like uh, chronic asthma. So it would be important to uh, know more about the genetic control of submucosal glands. 
However, you know, in the mouse, there are very few of these glands and they're all located just at the uh, top of the trachea. But uh, by contrast, in the ferret, like in the human, uh, submucosal glands are present throughout the lobes of the lung. Uh, wherever there's a, a cartilage uh, surrounding the airways, then there are submucosal glands uh, right down to quite close to the junction with the alveoli. So they would make uh, very much better models for studying the control of growth and the impact of problems in submucosal glands. So thanks to the pioneering work of John Engelhardt and his colleagues working at the University of Iowa, it is in fact now possible to genetically manipulate the ferret and to make strains for doing things like lineage tracing and manipulating lung stem cells. For example, recently his lab showed that there are, in fact, stem cells in the submucosal glands. Uh, they're called myoepithelial cells, and they actually function to maintain the uh, secretory cells of the gland over the long term. And uh, quite surprisingly, he also showed that uh, if the stem cells in the airways of the lung are damaged and depleted, then stem cells from the submucosal glands can migrate up the ducts onto the surface of the airway and replenish the uh, lost basal cells in the airways. So this, in a way, they're kind of acting as a reserve population of airway stem cells. Now, in fact, similar results were actually found about the same time and completely independently by Tata's lab at Duke. And he also showed this replenishment of airway stem cells. But the important thing is that the ferrets, uh, because the uh, glands are throughout the lung, make a much better model for studying the impact of things like uh, smoking or maybe uh, viral infections on the behavior of the uh, submucosal glands in the lung. And uh, they are, in Iowa, exposing ferrets to uh, cigarette smoke to do these kinds of experiments. It's also possible that uh, ferret lungs may also more closely resemble human lungs at the important area and very poorly understood and poorly studied area, which is just at the very, very ends of the small airways in the lungs and their junction with the alveoli. This region is sort of uh, populated in the human by respiratory bronchiola cells, which, as I said, are very poorly understood. Uh, and these cells are completely absent in the mouse. So you can't really look at them and their response to conditions which would produce COPD and uh, fibrosis. So people are looking at this region in the ferret. I don't think it's completely known yet whether the respiratory bronchiolar cells are the same or if they're there. But this is some, an area of very active research, uh, which is very exciting. So expanding on that, tell me, what do you see in the future? What do you see in the next decade? Are there particular areas that are quite niche at present that you feel will be standard practice in the next decade? One area that I think is important is not quite standard practice at the moment, but it's a very, very important area is how to get stem cells that you have manipulated in the lab, um, get them back into the lung. Progress is being made on this and also progress is being made on how to uh, stimulate the expression of various genes in stem cells already in the lung so that you can promote their survival and proliferation and different 
differentiation in disease states. I feel this is an area that will be overcome in the next 10 years and it will become fairly standard practice maybe to stimulate the proliferation of defective uh, stem cells in the lung or to replace ones with that have been um, engineered to overcome cystic fibrosis mutations. However, I think it's a much more difficult problem is going to be to engineer the whole lung because, you know, there are so many different cell types and it's so important that these cells are in the correct arrangement with each other in proximity to each other and that the uh, the blood system is interconnected with the um, uh, epithelial cells and these regions called adventitial niches, which are, we are only just beginning to understand the importance of, that they are restored as well. So I think this whole problem of making a whole lung is very difficult. People are making heroic efforts to put cells into decellularized scaffolds. But a much more, I think, a much more interesting idea is one uh, that is being pioneered by um, people to make chimeric lungs in which uh, many of the cells would be derived from uh, human so this uh, this topic is being pioneered largely by Dr. Hiromitsu Nakauchi, working at uh, Stanford University and also in and Tokyo University. For example, he has already made a chimeric pancreas that can be used to cure diabetes uh, in the mouse. And to do this, he injects mouse iPS cells, induced pluripotential stem cells into the blastocysts of rats that have been genetically engineered to be unable to make a pancreas. I mean, they just cannot make it because the gene is absent. However, the mouse cells, which are intermingled with the rat cells, they can make a pancreas. And so they take over this task in the uh, developing embryo, which is a chimeric embryo because it's a mixture of the rat and mouse cells. So this in the end gives rise to an organ, in his case, the pancreas, that is largely made up of mouse cells and can be used to transplant and uh, successfully cure diabetes in the mouse. So theoretically, it should be possible to make chimeric human organs by a similar strategy using human iPS cells injected into genetically deficient recipient embryos, uh, for example, a large animal like a pig or a sheep. So I think this is extremely exciting, but clearly it's going to take a little bit longer than 10 years to achieve this goal. And then in the shorter term, I, I just have to go back to my uh, my really fascination of looking at where genes are expressed. This was so powerful in my own research, and it's also becoming a very uh, powerful but still niche uh, technology, uh, which is to use something called spatial transcriptomics, uh, which allows you to look at the moment just tens of genes, but soon, you know, maybe hundreds or even thousands of messenger RNAs for different genes expressed in single cells in an intact organ section, or even possibly in 3D. So I think this is going to give us enormous insight uh, into the gene regulatory networks um, controlling lung stem cell behavior. And I mean, how these are altered in disease states. Uh, we've already seen how powerful just a single cell analysis is for identifying how in certain conditions like um, fibrosis, there's a defect in the ability of um, alveolar stem cells to differentiate into type 1 cells 
cells, how they sort of appear to get stuck in a transitionary state that's neither uh, the type 2 cell nor the type 1 cell, but is in this transitional state that sort of produces signals which uh, can cause uh, inflammation or uh, fibrosis. And I, and I think uh, Marco also you know, has this idea that identifying more of these uh, transitional states has opened up new avenues for research. And so I think in the same way, uh, single cell epigenomics and uh, spatial transcriptomics is going to become a routine protocol in the lab, much in the same way now as uh, in situ hybridization or tissue sectioning uh, was in the old days when I started. Although a little bit more expensive, Bridget, wouldn't you agree? Well, yes, well, all of these technologies are very expensive. And some of the therapies are obviously only going to be available to a very few privileged people in very rich countries. And I think this pandemic has shown us that still providing just basic lung health care to millions of people is still a terrible challenge throughout the world. And that we as scientists and clinician scientists shouldn't lose sight of the importance of research into public health and into things about like how to persuade people to wear masks and to get vaccination. So I think we have to stay humble as well as uh, excited going forward. Thank you so much. And I think that is uh, obviously an incredibly poignant point, particularly at this time. And again, I just want to thank you both for your time and for producing such a comprehensive and, and readable monograph. You know, on a personal level, you've produced a really fantastic introduction for me in education and such an exciting area of respiratory science. And I would really encourage not only respiratory scientists, but also clinicians to read this monograph. As Marco, you've already mentioned, it, it gives you an insight and an improved understanding of potentially what could be achieved together by understanding one another and hopefully how it will influence our practice in the future. I'm afraid that this brings us to the end of this podcast and I'm so grateful to all of you again for your time and dedication to this field. Thank you.